Chapter Thirteen of Black Ivory by R. M. Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: The Encampment and the Supper, Discussions, Political and Otherwise. Cambira receives a shock, and our wanderers are thrown into perplexity. Turn we now to a more peaceful scene. The camp is almost quiet, the stars are twinkling brightly overhead, the fires are glimmering fitfully below. The natives, having taken the edge off their appetites, have stretched their dusky forms on their sleeping mats, and laid their woolly heads on their little wooden pillows. The only persons moving are Harold Seadrift and Disco Lillehammer, the first being busy making notes in a small book the second being equally busy in manufacturing cloudlets from his unfailing pipe, gazing the while with much interest at his note-making companion. "'They was pretty vigorous when they was at it, sir,' said Disco, in reference to supper, observing that his companion looked up from his book, but they was sooner done than I had expected. "'Yes, they weren't long about it,' replied Harold, with an abstracted air, as he resumed his writing." Lest the reader should erroneously imagine that supper is over, it is necessary to explain what taking the edge off a free African's appetite means. On reaching camp after the cutting up of the elephant, as detailed in the last chapter, the negroes had set to work to roast and boil with a degree of vigor that would have surprised even the chefs de cuisine of the world's first-class hotels. Having gorged themselves to an extent that civilized people might perhaps have thought dangerous, they had then commenced an uproarious dance, accompanied by stentorian songs which soon reduced them to the condition of beings who needed repose. Proceeding upon the principle of overcoming temptation by giving way to it, they at once lay down and went to sleep. It was during this stage of the night's proceedings that Disco foolishly imagined that supper had come to a close. Not many minutes after the observation was made, and before the black cutty-pipe was smoked out, first one and then another of the sleepers awoke, and after a yawn or two got up to rouse the fires and put on the cooking-pots. In less than a quarter of an hour the whole camp was astir, conversation was rife, and the bubbling of pots that had not got time to cool, and the hissing of roasts whose fat had not yet hardened, mingled with songs whose echoes were still floating in the brains of the wild inhabitants of the surrounding jungle. Roasting, boiling, and eating were recommenced with as much energy as if the feast had only just begun. Kambira, having roused himself, gave orders to one of his men, who brought one of the elephant's feet and set about the cooking of it at Harold's fire. Cambira and Disco, with Antonio and Jumbo, sat round the same fire. There was a hole in the ground close beside them which contained a small fire. The embers of this were stirred up and replenished with fuel. When the inside was thoroughly heated, the elephant's foot was placed in it and covered over with hot ashes and soil, and another fire kindled above the hole. Harold, who regarded this proceeding with some surprise, said to Cambira, through Antonio, "'Who are you cooking that for?' "'For my white guests,' replied the chief. "'But we have supped already,' said Harold. "'We have already eaten as much as we can hold of the elephant's trunk and tongue, 
both of which were excellent, why prepare more? This is not for tonight, but for tomorrow, returned Cambira with a smile. The foot takes all night to cook. This was a sufficient explanation, and in truth the nature of the dish required that it should be well done. When on the morrow they were called to partake of it they found that it was, according to Disco's estimation, fustrate. It was a whitish mass, slightly gelatinous and sweet like marrow and very palatable. Nevertheless they learned from experience that if the effect of bile were to be avoided a long march was necessary after a meal of elephant's foot. Meanwhile the proceedings of the natives were food enough for our travelers for the time being. Like human creatures elsewhere they displayed great variety of taste. Some preferred boiled meat, others roast. A few indulged in porridge made of mapira meal. The meal was very good, but the porridge was doubtful owing to the cookery. It would appear that in Africa, as in England, woman excels in the culinary art. At all events the mapira meal was better managed by them than by the men. On the present occasion the hunters tumbled in the meal by handfuls in rapid succession as soon as the water was hot, until it became too thick to be stirred about. Then it was lifted off the fire, and one man held the pot while another plied the porridge stick with all his might to prevent the solid mass from being burnt. Thus it was prepared, and thus eaten, in enormous quantities. No wonder that dancing and profuse perspiration were esteemed a necessary adjunct to feeding. At the close of the second edition of supper, which went into four or five editions before morning, some of the men at the fire next to that of Cambira engaged in a debate so furious that the curiosity of Disco and Harold was excited, and they caused Antonio to translate much of what was said. It is not possible to give a connected account of this debate as translated by Antonio. To overcome the difficulty we shall give the substance of it in what Disco styled Antonio's lingo. There were about a dozen natives round the fire, but two of them sustained the chief part in the debate. One of these was a large man with a flat nose, the other was a small man with a large frizzy head. Hold whose tongue, said flat nose, so Antonio named him, tongue too long, far. Bah, whose brains too short retorted Frizzyhead contemptuously. An immense amount of chattering by the others followed these pithy remarks of the principals. The question in debate was whether the two toes of the ostrich represented the thumb and forefinger in man, or the little and ring fingers. But in a few minutes the subject changed gradually, and somehow unaccountably, to questions of a political nature. For strange to say, in savage Africa, as in civilized England, politics are keenly discussed, doubtless at times with equal wisdom in the one land as in the other. "'What that who say?' inquired Flatnose on hearing some muttered remarks of Frizzyhead in reference to the misgovernment of chiefs. Of course there, as here, present company was understood to be accepted. "'Chiefs of no use, no use at all.' said Frizzyhead so vehemently that the men at several of the nearest fires ceased to talk and began to listen. "'Up no use?' cried Flatnose with vehemence so superior that the attention of the whole camp was arrested. "'No,' replied Frizzyhead, still more energetically. 
of no use at all. We could govern ourselves betterer, so what de use of em? The chief ums fat and had plenty wife, but we who do all de hard work have hunger and only one wife, perhaps none at all. This is bad, unjust, wrong. There was a general shout of E from all quarters, which was equivalent to our hear, hear. Oh, no, nothing at all, retorted Flatnose, who was a loyal subject. Is not de chief de fodder of de people? Can there be people without a fodder, eh? God made de chief. Who says that chief is not wise? He is wise, but ums childum and big fools. Kambira nodded his head and smiled at this, and there was a general inclination on the part of most of the audience to applaud for there, as elsewhere, men have a tendency to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. It was amusing to observe the earnestness and freedom with which men of the lowest grade assaulted the opinions of their betters on this occasion. Unable at other times or in any other way to bring themselves into importance, they were glad of the opportunity to do so with their tongues, and, like their civilized types, they assumed an air of mock modesty. Oh, cried one of these and replied Flatnose, we is little infants, we is still holdin' onto de bosoms of our mothers. We will not be able to walk alone, we knows nothing at all, but on dis point we knows that you old men speak like de ignorant people. We never hear such nonsense, never. No notice was taken of this, but Frizzyhead, whose passion was rising to white heat in consequence of the glibness of his opponent's tongue, cried out, "'O cannot prove what O says!' "'O yes, can prove it well enough,' replied Flatnose, "'but oo's no got brain for understand.' This last was too much for poor Frizzyhead, who leaped up, stuttered, and cried, "'Can O outrun me, then?' Ye yes gasped Flatnose, springing up. Away they went like two hundred springboks, and ran for a mile, then turned and came back into camp streaming with perspiration, little Frizzyhead far ahead of the big man, and rejoicing in the fact that he could beat his opponent in a race, if not in an argument. Thus was peace restored. Pity that civilized arguments cannot be terminated in the same way. While these discussions were going on, Disco observed that hyenas were occasionally to be seen prowling near the verge of the bushes around them, as if anxious to join in the feast, which no doubt was the case. "'Don't they do mischief sometimes?' he inquired of Antonio. "'No, him a cowardly beast. Him come at men's while sleeping or dying, but not at other time. Or like see me catch em? "'Why, yes, if he can do it,' answered Disco, with a slight look of contempt at his friend who bore too much resemblance in some points to the hyena. Come here, then. They went together into the jungle a little distance and halted under the branch of a large tree. To this Antonio suspended a lump of raw flesh at such a height from the ground that a hyena could only reach it by leaping. Directly underneath it he planted a short spear in the earth with its point upward. Now come back to the fire, he said to Disco who soon hear something. Antonio was right. In a short time afterwards a sharp yell was heard, and on running to the trap they found a hyena in its death agonies. It had leaped at the meat, missed it, and come down on the spear and impaled itself. Well, 
of all the fellers I ever knowed for dodges, said Disco, on reseating himself at the fire. The men in these latitudes are the cleverest. By this time dancing was going on furiously. Therefore, as it would have been impossible to sleep, Disco refilled his pipe and amused himself by contemplating the intelligent countenance of Cambira, who sat smoking bang out of a huge native meerschaum on the other side of the fire. "'I wonder,' said Harold, who lay stretched on a sleeping mat, leaning on his right arm, and gazing contemplatively at the glowing heart of the fire, "'I wonder what has become of Yusuf. Was he thinking that he deserved to be shoved in there?' asked Disco, pointing to the fire." "'Not exactly,' replied Harold, laughing, "'but I have frequently thought of the scoundrel and wondered where he is and what doing now. I have sometimes thought, too, about that girl Azinte, poor thing. She—' He paused abruptly and gazed at Cambira with great surprise, not unmixed with alarm, for the chief had suddenly dropped his pipe and glared at him in a manner that cannot be described. Disco observed the change also and was about to speak when Cambira sprang over the fire and seized Harold by the arm. There was something in the movement, however, which forbade the idea of an attack, therefore he lay still. "'What now, Cambira?' he said. "'Antonio!' cried the chief in a voice that brought the interpreter to his side in a twinkling. "'What name did the white man speak just now?' "'Azinte,' said Harold, rising to a sitting posture. Cambira sat down, drew up his knees to his chin, and clasped his hands round them. "'Tell me all you know about Azinte,' he said in a low, firm voice. It was evident that the chief was endeavoring to restrain some powerful feeling, for his face, black though it was, indicated a distinct degree of pallor, and his lips were firmly compressed together. Harold, therefore, much surprised as well as interested, related the little he knew about the poor girl, his meeting with her in Yusuf's hut, Disco's kindness to her, and her subsequent departure with the Arab. Cambira sat motionless until he had finished. "'Do you know where she is gone?' he inquired. "'No, I know not, but she was not in the boat with the other slaves when we sailed, from which I think it likely that she remained upon the coast. But why do you ask, Cambira?' why are you so anxious about her she is my wife muttered the chief between his teeth and as he said so a frown that was absolutely diabolical settled down on his features for some minutes there was a dead silence for both harold and disco felt intuitively that to offer consolation or hope were out of the question presently cambira raised his head and a smile chased the frown away as he said you have been kind to Azinte. Will you be kind to her husband? We should be indeed unworthy the name of Englishman if we said no to that, replied Harold, glancing at Disco, who nodded approval. Good. Will you take me with you to the shores of the great salt lake? said Cambira in a low, pathetic tone. Will you make me your servant, your slave? Most gladly will I take you with me as a friend, returned Harold. I need not ask why you wish to go, he added. You go to seek Azinte? Yes, cried the chief, springing up wildly and drawing himself up to his full height. I go to seek Azinte. Ho, up, men, up! 
ye have feasted enough and slept enough for one night. Who knows but the slavers may be at our huts while we lie idly here. Up, let us go. The ringing tones acted like a magic spell. Savage camps are soon pitched and sooner raised. In a few minutes the obedient hunters had bundled up all their possessions, and in less than a quarter of an hour the whole band was tracking its way by moonlight through the pathless jungle. The pace at which they traveled home was much more rapid than that at which they had set out on their expedition. Somehow the vigorous tones in which Kambira had given command to break up the camp, coupled with his words, roused the idea that he must have received information of danger threatening the village, and some of the more anxious husbands and fathers, unable to restrain themselves, left the party altogether and ran back the whole way. To their great relief, however, they found on arriving that all was quiet. The women were singing and at work in the fields, the children shouting at play, and the men at their wonted occupation of weaving cotton cloth or making nets and bows under the banyan trees. Perplexity is not a pleasant condition of existence. Nevertheless, to perplexity mankind is more or less doomed in every period of life and in every mundane scene, particularly in the jungles of Central Africa, as Harold and his friends found out many a time to their cost. On arriving at the native village the chief point that perplexed our hero there was as to whether he should return to the coast at once or push on further into the interior. On the one hand he wished very much to see more of the land and its inhabitants. On the other hand Kambira was painfully anxious to proceed at once to the coast in search of his lost wife and pressed him to set off without delay. The chief was rather an exception in regard to his feelings on this point. Most other African potentates had several wives, and in the event of losing one of them might have found consolation in the others. But Kambira had never apparently thought of taking another wife after the loss of Azinte, and the only comfort he had was in his little boy, who bore a strong resemblance in some points to the mother. But although Harold felt strong sympathy with the man, and would have gone a long way out of his course to aid him, he could not avoid perceiving that the case was almost, if not altogether, a hopeless one. He had no idea to what part of the coast Azinte had been taken. For all he knew to the contrary, she might have been long ago shipped off to the northern markets, and probably was, even while he talked of her, the inmate of an Arab harem, or at all events a piece of goods, a chattel in the absolute possession of an irresponsible master. Besides, the improbability of Kambira ever hearing what had become of his wife, or to what part of the earth she had been transported, there was also the difficulty of devising any definite course of action for the chief himself, because the instant he should venture to leave the protection of the Englishman he would be certain to fall into the hands of Arabs or Portuguese and become enslaved. Much of this Harold had not the heart to explain to him. He dwelt, however, pretty strongly on the latter contingency, though without producing much effect. Death, the chief replied, he did not fear, and slavery could easily be exchanged for death. Alas, not so easily as you think, said Harold, pointing to Chimbolo, 
whose sad story he had heard. They will try every kind of torture before they kill you. Chimbolo nodded his head, assenting, and ground his teeth together fiercely when this was said. Still Kambira was unmoved. He did not care what they did to him. Azinte was as life to him, and to search for her he would go in spite of every consideration. Harold prevailed on him, however, to agree to wait until he should have spent another month in visiting Chimbolo's tribe, after which he promised faithfully to return and take him along with his party to the coast. Neither Harold nor Disco was quite at ease in his mind after making this arrangement, but they both agreed that no other course could be pursued, the former saying with a sigh that there was no help for it, and the latter asserting with a grunt that the thing was unavoidable. On the following day the journey of exploration was resumed. Kambira accompanied his friends a few miles on the road, and then bade them farewell. On the summit of an elevated ridge the party halted and looked back. Kambira's manly form could be seen leaning on his spear. Behind him the little village lay embosomed in luxuriant verdure, and glowing in the bright sunshine, while songs and sounds of industry floated towards them like a sweet melody. It was with a feeling of keen regret that the travelers turned away after waving their hands in reply to a parting salute from the stalwart chief, and, descending to the plain, pushed forward into the unknown wilderness beyond. End of chapter 13 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com